to look at Matthew chapter 1. I want to talk to you about the glory of Christmas. And when we look at the, the glory of Christmas in the Christmas uh, stories, all that precedes it is the Old Testament. And then we come to the event of Christmas and the birth of Christ into the world. Now, the entire Old Testament is like a book, big book of God's making promises, promises that he is going to fulfill. And these promises are chiefly fulfilled in and around the birth and the life and the uh, sufferings and resurrection of Christ Jesus. So the Old Testament promises these things the New Testament fulfills these things, and yet there are still aspects of these promises, both from the Old Testament and the New Testament, that are to be fulfilled. Now, when we look at this, the author is writing uh, to do a, a couple of things, but we're, we're really a long way away from when Matthew first wrote his gospel. And for us, we see these promises have been fulfilled. We recognize that Christ is our Savior. But it's not like, okay, we've got that. Really, the idea in the scripture is, yes, we know these things were fulfilled. And so we have a great sense of confidence about all that God's doing in the world. But beyond that, for us today, there lies the future. And the future is filled with God's promises that are yet to be fulfilled, and those promises are going to be directly fulfilled in relationship to us, in our relationship to God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we look at a book like this, and we look at these stories of promise and fulfillment, it gives us confidence, but it also gives us hope, it gives us certainty, it gives us great encouragement that all of these other prophecies are still to be fulfilled. Now, if we go back in the Old Testament, we'll see, well, there's some stories like this. Yeah, the big story of redemption in the Old Testament, and the biggest one is the uh, people of, of uh, Israel coming out of Egypt. And their leader was the man Moses. And Moses lived to be 120 years of age. And right at the end, in his last great sermon, as he is about to die, and Joshua is about to take the nation into the promised land, he goes over a whole panorama of all the things that God has done for the nation of Israel. Then he comes to a conclusion. He makes this statement. And not one of God's good promises has fallen to the ground. Now that's a great little statement to just anchor in your mind. Not one of God's good promises has fallen to the ground. What's he saying to Joshua and to the people of Israel? The faithful God who has been with us is the faithful God who is with us, who is the faithful God who will always be with us. That's the idea. And we see that all the way through the scripture, and here's another picture of it in Matthew. Now, let me read a few of these verses, beginning in verse 1. The book 
of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of God, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then if you'll just flip over to verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now notice as you look there, there's a quotation mark that ends. Now in verse 22, this is Matthew speaking. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now quoting from Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, I was reading and preparing for this month back in November. So I decided what I was going to try to do is every day, uh, beginning in early November, and I've kept it up pretty much to today, to read the two chapters in Matthew that deal with the birth of Christ every day, and to read the two chapters that relate to the birth of Christ in the book of Luke, and I did that. Now, as I was working through this and then coming to titles of messages so that you could kind of have a forecast of what I was going to be doing here in December, I was looking at Matthew and looking at this phrase at the end of uh, verse 22, or which is verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And I began to think about that, and so since I was right there at the first page of Matthew, I just decided to do a rather quick Bible study, this quick. All right, I look down the page and I see there are references here from the Old Testament. Turn the page. <laughs> and I did that all the way through John's Gospel. It was really interesting, and if you were to use the particular Bible you have in front of you, you would begin to see exactly what I'm seeing, that the bulk of these references to the Old Testament are in Matthew's Gospel. There are a number in Luke, there are a couple in Mark, and there are not nearly as many in the book of John. And they're here concentrated because Matthew is trying to use the Old Testament to show that there were these promises of a Messiah and that they found their precise fulfillment in the person of Jesus coming into the world. And again, you can just, while we're talking, just flip the pages. You'll see what I'm talking about. Now, to kind of anchor this kind of where I'm going in, my, in your mind, uh, 
tell you this about myself. It's not on the card there, but you women that cook will need to know this, bake primarily. I only like two kinds of pie. And you need to know that. Hot and cold. So I'm very particular. And anything that you want to bring will be just great. When I go down to the Mennonite restaurant in Montezuma, I think, well, there is blueberry pie. That's a vegetable. I <laughs> There's apple pie. That's a vegetable. I ought to get, I ought to get those things, maybe a meat, and that would be great. Uh, all right. We've got two things going on here. Let's look at it from this perspective. First of all, you've got precise prophecy, very specific. The other is you have overarching prophecy that hold the whole thing together. One type of pie and another type of pie as you look at this. Now, you know the story about Yogi in a pizza, Yogi Berra in a pizza? They came to Yogi and they says, well, we've got your pizza ready. Do you want us to cut it in four slices or eight? He says, make it four. I could never eat eight. <laughs> now, what you're seeing is that this is split up, these precise prophecies. Now, let's just think about them for a minute. You have these kind of prophecies in Matthew. In verse 22 here, it's saying all this took place, which would the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Now, I think all this took place really doesn't refer to the birth. It refers to the whole of the gospel. All of this is for the fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophet. If you look over at chapter 2, verse 5, it says, so it is written by the prophet. And then if you go to uh, 2... 17, uh, it says, this was the fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And then in 2.17, uh, it says, and this was, or 2.15, I should have gotten that one first. This was to, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then in chapter 2.23, it's saying, and this was what was spoken by the prophets that might be fulfilled. And then in 3 verse 3, it's saying, this was what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said. There's a strong emphasis here. There were promises that were made to the people of Israel, and now these promises are being very specifically used by Matthew to show that all of this focuses on the person of Christ. Now, sometimes we have to emphasize some of this. Jesus did. In one of his conversations with the Pharisees, they were challenging him about his ministry and who he was. And he quoted a verse from the Old Testament. 
Now, Jesus followed that quotation by saying, and the scripture cannot be broken. Think of that. In this, Jesus is saying, and the scripture cannot be broken. He is making a statement about the nature of each and every one of these promises. He is saying, if the Old Testament said it, it is going to be fulfilled. Now, as we look at this again, coming back over it, in Matthew 1.23, it's a quotation about Isaiah 7.14, that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And so this is an explanation from the Old Testament of the rationalness of God who made man in his own image having his son incarnate through a person who was made in the image of God and that he is going to be born in a supernatural manner in order that he is going to become, as it says in other passages, the Son of God, God with us. So the promise was made to Isaiah, and now this is being worked out in the fulfillment of the person of Christ. So as we look down a little further in Matthew 2, verse 6, it's a quotation from the book of Micah. Now, this was well known, so when the Magi came, they asked in Jerusalem where the Christ was to be born. There was no question to the authorities at that time. They pointed them straight to the book of Micah. Of course, you realize there was no chapter 5 and no verse 2. It was just one long book of Micah. And they just opened it up and says, well, this is where it says Micah's saying this. Well, here you have the very precise place of Bethlehem being the place where Christ was born. We're all familiar with the story of how he got there because of the taxation. And if we remember the stories of, um, let's take, for instance, the story of the calling of Nathaniel. In John's Gospel, Philip goes and finds his friend Nathaniel, and he says to Nathaniel, uh, we found him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. And then he says, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, right away, Nathaniel, who is a Bible scholar, says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Well, later on, when they're looking at Jesus and they're scrutinizing him, they're getting ready to condemn him. And Nicodemus, we're told, he was a uh, disciple, the one secretly, he challenges the other Sanhedrin members, and he says, Does our law condemn a man without previously hearing him? And they basically say to Nicodemus, You fool, search the scripture. See that no prophet arises out of Nazareth. So these people all had Jesus born in Nazareth, the scriptures are telling us over and over and clearly that he was born in Bethlehem, specifically fulfilling this prophecy. Um, we hear the story there in Matthew 2, uh, verse 15, about the need of Joseph to take Mary and the baby and to flee into Egypt. 
and then the formula of what is written by the prophet that God's son will come out of Egypt. Then you go down to Matthew 2.18, and this is a quotation from Jeremiah 31.15, that there will be a satanic attack on the birth of Christ, an effort to destroy him, and that the result of that will be the slaughter of what is typically called the innocents, the babies that are under two years of age. And then there's one further. We don't have an Old Testament quote for the one in Matthew 2.23, but it is using the formula that it has been written that he shall be called a Nazarene. So you've got Yogi's pie split up into so many pieces but it's still the same pie. It's all about Jesus and his birth is being reinforced to us in a way of understanding that it's directly in the fulfillment of these prophecies. Sometimes we see the trees and we miss the forest. What does this whole thing look like? Well, you've got overarching prophecies now when you go into Luke and into Matthew. The number one overarching promise in prophecy is the announcement by the angels of the birth of Christ. This is a a promise that goes back to the very beginning of the scripture in Genesis 3.15 that because of man's fall and God's curse and God's curse on Satan and his promise that one will be born of woman who will destroy the works of the devil. And that's what's being announced to the world, not just specific people like the Jews in Matthew. And so the emphasis is of an overarching nature that holds all this together. Another one of these overarching promises as we're looking at the scripture is the uh, recognition of the Magi. God sends a star. Somehow that star by these wise men is interpreted and interpreted properly. It brings them to Jerusalem. They ask the question where the Christ is to be born and they're given that information. And what we're seeing more and more is the nature of Christ being the savior of the world. Here are people that are not a part of the nation of Israel and they're coming uh, to worship Christ as God. Now, the other is that God's action in bringing Christ into the world and the satanic attack that is focused upon him. This has been the story from the beginning, right out of the book of Genesis, and this attack is an identical kind of attack. It's repeated again in the temptations of Christ, but you see God is in charge in intervening here in keeping Satan from being able to destroy the Christ child. And so this picture is the biggest picture that all that has been undone by man's fall, all of that is going to be righted through God's own son. So we see that. Now, the other thing that we see here is that this plan in the Old Testament is always a mystery. If we look into the opening uh, verses of 2 Peter, it talks about this, 
And it says that this plan of God's saving man through Christ is something that the prophets all understood, but they did not understand all the particulars, nor did they understand the time of these things. But these things were kept for us, but it also says these are things into which angels long to look. And so the great mystery of God's redemption is being realized in the specifics and in the overarching plan as we look at the Christmas story. Now my thinking is that we look at the Christmas story and we hear the same stuff about it year after year. So I've tried to come at this from a different perspective in order that you see the depth of what's behind the story so that when you read it, you get a fuller, greater, more unique uh, understanding. But what we're told by the angel's announcement, uh, a friend of mine texted me yesterday that he had passed his uh, drug test and he would start to work on Monday. And he was thrilled because he was out of a job and he's got a good job. And so I texted him back and says, this is a message of great joy to all the nations that, you know, that his wife and sons are very happy that daddy is gone to work. But we need to see that this message is a continuous joy to us. We should look at this message and allow, uh, allow it to constantly cheer our hearts at the very depths. We look back in the past and we say, God made these promises, and they're intricate, and they're huge, and yet all of it has been fulfilled. Now, there's still aspects of the promise that are yet to be fulfilled, um, and yet what that leaves us with is the desire in our hearts to hold on to God's promises in the way the Old Testament promised prophets held on to God's promises, and as we hold on to them and look at them, it builds in us hope and it builds in us faith. God has done what he said he would do, and so that is meant to strengthen our faith and give us hope. But then we say, okay, God's promises were realized. That is for the present. All of the benefits of this story have and are accruing to us every single day. And with that, we should have, as a result of these prophecies, a great sense of day-by-day -day confidence. What God has done, God is still doing, and he will do it. And so if this is going to be done, I mean, I, I just think of it, we're going to have a new world. We're not going to have to pick up trash on the Okmulgee. We're not going to have all kinds of pollution. We're not going to have debt. I'm constantly dealing with people on the decline. We're not going to be on the decline. We're going to have new bodies and glorified bodies. And this is, to me, a great joy. I mean, I hold this before me all the time, that this is the way things will be. I'm living now, but I'm living now on the basis of what I know has happened. I am living now on the basis of what I know is happening, 
and I'm living on the basis of what is still yet to happen. That gives me joy. It gives me confidence. It gives me peace. When mom was dying, um, dad died just in the middle of the night. I mean, he was gone by the time I got there. And here was kind of my best buddy, and he was with the Lord. It was sad to not have my best buddy. It was a joy to know he was with the Lord. Mom lived. My mom had about 30 years of singleness, about 30 years of marriedness, and about 30 years of being a widow. And just mom was just the greatest. And I'm sitting there watching her die. All she's doing is leaving this world. Uh, I don't have any sense that I've lost something. I'm distanced from someone, but I haven't lost anyone. And there will be a time when I will join her and my children and my friends. And we should have this idea about sharing the gospel with people. It is the joy, a great joy, and it's for all the people. And so I live in the presence in the light of what God's done, what God's doing, and what God will yet do. But then the future is before us. It's certain. Now, in Colossians chapter 1, down around verse 6, it talks about this church having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, love for all the Christians, it says, because the hope that is laid up for us in heaven. And that hope, he goes on to call a blessed hope. He calls it Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he's speaking about our union with Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God. Because Christ is there, it's proof positive that all of God's plans in bringing Christ into the world at Christmas have been realized. He would not be seated at God's right hand were it not realized. We are united to Christ. Christ is united to us. We talk about it in our theological way, in our catechism. We ask the question, what benefits come to Christians at their death? And the answer says, well, the souls of those who die in Christ are made immediately perfect, and they do pass into the presence of the Lord. But then it says our bodies still being united to Christ. Now, why do they say that? Because Christ is bodily seated at the right hand of God. Our bodies are united to Christ's body. Christ's body is in heaven. It's the assurance that as Christ is bodily in heaven that there's going to come a time when Christ returns and there is a general resurrection that we're going to be raised and receive glorified bodies much like the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the future. But it's based upon a promise. But we know all the promises that God has made have been fulfilled. We know that uh, Moses can say, not one of God's good promises has fallen to the ground. Jesus can say, uh, the scriptures cannot be broken. What are one of the last words that Jesus said on the cross, you remember? It is finished. Now, certainly he's talking particularly 
about the atonement of sins. But what he's talking about is the victory over sin and Satan and death. So when he says it is finished, it is just like him saying the scriptures cannot be broken. What is accomplished is exactly what God intended to accomplish. We find the same thing in the last verses of the book of Revelation when Jesus says to the angel, write, these things are faithful and true. I am the Alpha, I am the Omega, I am the beginning, I am the end. All those who have their faith in me are going to benefit from everything that I've done. So when we look at Christmas, what do we see? We see God's promises, and they are fulfilled. And we have in there the sense of confidence. We live in the light of them being fulfilled. We should never have any doubt. Sin has been purged away. Eternal life has been restored. Christ is seated at the right hand of God and is going to be returned. And Paul can say it this way in Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. The same glory that will reveal Christ is the glory in which we will be revealed in these glorified bodies. We look at this message of Christmas. A key component is promise and fulfillment. That's the message that we should take away from looking particularly at these prophecies that are in uh, the book of Matthew. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the joy of having a, a scripture that can be looked at like a perfect diamond. No matter which facet we turn to look into that diamond, we see the perfection of beauty. And when we look at the whole diamond with its fire and flash and purity, we're overwhelmed and amazed with its perfection. Help us to have that as our great confidence and our great joy as we come to celebrate the birth of your Son into the world. We make our prayer and thanksgiving in his name. Amen.